For the week of April 4th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we talk with writer Daniel DeMay of SeattlePI.com about the city of Seattle's suit against the Trump administration's executive order on sanctuary cities. And then we chat with Catherine Williams. She is the founder of Indivisible Covington, and she and her group are planning an empty chair town hall for none other than Dave Reichert. And of course, we'll have our dose of good news followed by our weekly call to action. First, we are joined by Daniel DeMay. He writes for SeattlePI.com. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So last week on March 29th, Seattle announced that it is suing the Trump administration over the executive order Trump signed on January 25th that aims to pull federal funding for so-called sanctuary cities, of which Seattle is unofficially one. Um, First, a sanctuary city is a designation that pertains to how city law enforcement deals with federal immigration laws in this particular instance. Can you just flesh that out for us a little bit? What specifically does a sanctuary city status mean? Well, the problem, sanctuary city, uh, city or jurisdiction status is kind of a squishy term because it's not something that's been defined by uh, by any one city, county, state, or the federal government. Um, but you know, generally, it tends to mean that law enforcement is not going to ask people for their immigration status when they contact with them, and that means uh, local or state law enforcement, uh, you know, Washington State Patrol in Washington or the Seattle uh, Police Department or the King County Sheriff. And, uh, you know, the thinking behind that is that they don't want people afraid to interact with the police because they They'll see people not reporting domestic violence, for example, or refusing to give statements as witness to a crime. Uh, so that's the big one. And then the other part of that is that, uh, like, uh, counties will refuse to um, to hold hold people. Basically, they call them ICE detainers to hold people that um, the federal government might want to arrest. And um, some counties will say, we'll hold them if you have a federal arrest warrant. Some counties will say, we won't hold them in any case. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that the local jurisdiction is not going to use resources to enforce federal immigration policies. I think that's the, the most basic statement there. So to be clear, it doesn't prevent federal agents like ICE from coming into the city and doing what they're going to do, right? Not in the least. Okay. Many see the executive order basically as a retaliatory measure from the Trump administration against cities that aren't planning on complying with its immigration measures. Uh, The lawsuit is aimed at having Trump's executive order declared unconstitutional. Um, Give us some specifics. What specifically does the lawsuit? suit argue there? Well, the lawsuit pulls on a couple things. Uh, It leans heavily on the Tenth Amendment and kind of, you know, the Tenth Amendment in its simplicity says that the power not relegated to the federal government is returned to the states, except where specifically, uh, you know, left up to them. Um, And it sort of takes that as a read on that to be, we're not required to enforce federal law. And you know, that's true to a certain extent. And, you know, the idea is that the the problem with the executive order, uh, you know, the lawsuit argues that the executive order is unconstitutional because it threatens to pull money in ways that, according to sort of existing law and precedent, 
it can't be done. Um, for example, if Congress gives money to a state for, uh, like if they give DOJ money to a state or a city, they can only pull that money if the if there's a problem with uh, enforcement specifically related to that money. So if they gave money for housing to Seattle, for example, and they didn't like that Seattle wasn't picking up uh, undocumented immigrants, they couldn't pull that housing money just because they don't like the way they're dealing with immigration. Um, so the, the lawsuit, you know, it, it builds on that to say that it, this doesn't work under our existing laws. So it is not completely clear how the Trump administration defines a sanctuary city or even if they see Seattle as a sanctuary city. Can you shed a little bit of light on that and why, in in light of that, you maybe could speculate why uh, Ed Murray and Pete Holmes decided to go ahead with this this lawsuit? Well, I don't think that the Trump administration wants to define a sanctuary city too narrowly or a sanctuary jurisdiction because it's you know if the if the purpose of their of his order is to go after these cities it's to their benefit to leave that a little bit ambiguous and not really define it but say hey if you don't play by our rules we're going to come after you whether or not Seattle has been called out the King County has been called out as one of the um bad kids so to speak uh mm-hmm. for not participating and i think that you know, given what has already, Seattle's already been in the spotlight with um, a federal judge here, of course, overturning Trump's travel ban after our attorney general sued. And I think that... Yeah, we've been in their crosshairs quite a bit. Yeah. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, Mayor Murray probably saw an opportunity for us to be a leader on this issue as well um, as a city, you know, and I, I don't know exactly, you know, if that was the motivation, but it certainly... Uh, They seem to insinuate that uh, Jeff Sessions' um, comments uh, the Monday before this suit were helping motivate the suit to come down the pipe, but presumably they were working on it before that. Well, let's talk about Jeff Sessions and specifically, let's talk about some numbers. Uh, He threatened to pull funds from uh, so-called sanctuary cities that come from the Department of Justice. That was his specific threat that you're referring to. How much does Seattle receive there? Uh, Seattle is slated to receive uh, 2.6 million in DOJ grants uh, this year. Okay, and then in terms of federal funding overall, how much could Seattle uh, stand to lose under the executive order? Uh, it's uh, 85 million of the 2015 budget um, came from uh, federal funds. So you know that's uh, that's probably more potentially for 2017. They they don't really. They don't know exactly what it is when it um, until they've sort of finished out and wrapped up the books for every prior year because they, you know, they they sort of get fill in money. But uh, you know, it's not a it's not a huge it's not like a quarter or a half of the budget or anything. We have a multi billion dollar budget here, but it's a big chunk of money. But with that said, uh, everyone I've talked to doesn't seem to think that the federal government can just come in and take that away. Right. The figures that I've seen, I believe, are about $150 million projected. Uh, Mayor Murray has said that he is prepared to lose every penny of it, I believe is a quote. Um, You say in your piece that Seattle has something akin to a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to immigration. So is the executive order as it stands right now currently having any impact on the way that law enforcement in Seattle handles immigration issues? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I think the 
Mayor Murray and members of the King County Council and even the governor, for that matter, Jay Inslee, have reiterated over and over that the local police here uh, are not asking people their immigration status. Uh, Services in the city and the county do not ask do not ask people their immigration status and don't, you know, they don't care. Like they're going to give you services regardless of whether you have uh, any legal citizenship or legal status in the United States. Well, Daniel DeMay, thank you uh, so much for joining us and shedding light on all that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Time now for this week's call to action. But first, because, well, it's nice to, let's uh, let's start with some good news. Okay, first, let's start here at home. After 50 days, DACA recipient Daniel Ramirez Medina, who had been detained in Tacoma, is now free from the detention center. He is set to face deportation hearings, and we will keep you up to date on his story as it develops. Next, in other immigration-related news, the federal judge in Hawaii, who was the first to stay the Trump administration latest travel ban just extended his order last week, further blocking enforcement of the ban. Also, Democrats in Georgia are raising a ton of money to help elect John Ossoff to fill Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price's vacant Senate seat. I think it'll be nice to have someone who maybe doesn't engage in blatant insider trading in the seat for a while. And uh, finally, and this is unrelated to politics, but this is a story that is fun nonetheless. After almost four years, Bertha the giant tunnel boring machine just broke through and saw daylight on the other side of its massive tunneling project that is going to replace the Alaskan viaduct in Seattle. And now, time for this week's call to action. So, as you may already know, today, April 4th, is Equal Pay Day, a day that should not be necessary, dedicated to a proposition that should not be controversial, that women should receive the same pay as men for doing the same job. Here are some things that you can do in observation, either today or tomorrow. First, call your member of Congress and ask him or her, and especially if it's him, to close any existing loopholes in federal employment laws that allow for discrimination. The Equal Pay Act of 1963 prohibits pay discrimination on the basis of sex, but, well, states are still finding their way around it. Encourage your congressperson to pass a comprehensive update to the Equal Pay Act that will deter discrimination by strengthening penalties for violators and prohibiting retaliation against workers who inquire about employers' wage practices or disclose their own wages. There's actually a great checklist of talking points put out by the American Association of University Women that you can use when you call your congressperson's office. I have included it in the text for the show for you to reference. Oh, and uh, if you need any motivation in the matter, and I'm pretty sure you don't, but just in case you do, uh, consider that last week, just days before Equal Pay Day, Donald Trump signed an executive order that revoked President Obama's 2014 Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces order. Because if there's one thing this country doesn't need, it's fair pay and safe workplaces, right? The executive order rolled back two rules that impacted women in the workplace, paycheck transparency, and a ban on forced arbitration clauses for sexual harassment, sexual assault, or discrimination claims. So, enough said there. Let us all agitate for equal pay. And that is this week's call to action. 
My guest on the podcast this week is Catherine Williams. She is the founder of Indivisible Covington, which is in Washington's 8th District, represented by Dave Reichert. And she is going to be hosting a town hall in absentia for the congressman during the next recess coming up, which we will discuss in detail. Uh, We started by talking a little bit about her background. She actually has a degree in chemical and nuclear engineering, which she says makes her particularly keen to environmental issues. Uh, I asked her how she came to found her group. When I initially started it, I didn't know about Indivisible, so I actually started a private group on Facebook called The Resistance because of my severe existential terror a few days after the election. I was texting with my friends. We didn't know exactly what to do about the situation we were given with uh, Mr. Trump becoming president. Mm-hmm. So I kind of I gathered a group on Facebook and just invited about 15 of my friends, and I said, hey, let's, uh, let's get together and maybe talk about some actions we can do, or at least have this space where we can discuss it without being harassed. Right. So, so then I invited those friends. I said, you know, if you know friends or family members that feel the same way we do, and maybe want to do something constructive about that after we figure out what that thing is, because even at that point, we didn't know what to do. Uh, they started inviting their friends. So after a while, I had about 50 people, and then I had 100 people, then I had about, you know, 500 people, 800 people, and the numbers just kept climbing people joining my group because they were afraid of this administration and didn't know what to do about it and were being harassed by some of their friends and family on their own Facebook feeds. So that's where my group started. And then I discovered Indivisible. But by the time I'd started my group, I'd made it a private group and I didn't feel like I should out the people that were in my group already. So then I speak, I opened up uh, Indivisible Covington Washington portal group so that people from Indivisible could find my group and then I could friend them and bring them into my private group. And that's where most of the activity happens. It's amazing how grassroots all of this is and how organic uh, most of these movements have been. They've really just sort of sprung up, I think, mostly out of a need for people to connect, you know, and and to just sort of express mutual outrage. Um, Let's talk about the event that you have planned. This is a town hall for Representative Dave Reichert. He is representative for the 8th District. This is going to be on April 12th. Um, As we all remember from last congressional recess, Reichert has said that he will not do town hall meetings. So you are going to hold what is now being called an empty chair event. Uh, I know that you reached out to the representative. What was his office's response? Oh, well, in the days following following the election, before I really understood how my government works, actually, I submitted a form to meet the congressman. And so eventually I did get to actually meet him in person. And by the time that meeting came around, I had a much greater understanding of what we were facing in terms of our representative not representing our needs. Were you part so, of the group of eight people who met with him of indivisible leaders? There were two groups that day. Okay. There was one of seven people and one of eight people. My group was the less photogenic group, so <laughs> we're not the ones. We were not the ones photographed and uh, posted on his Facebook page. But yeah, tell us a little bit about your experience with him. Uh, well, I went into the meeting not knowing too much about the congressman because I'm on the, uh, this Facebook group now, guided by Indivisible. I, I get a lot of opinions thrown at me about the congressman, but I did try to keep an open mind about who I was going to meet. And I felt like when I met him, I didn't really meet the, his true self. And I felt like I was actually uh, being used as a photo opportunity. Hmm. So I didn't we, we went in there with specific questions about legislation and specific questions about people that have been appointed by the Trump administration. And we 
we got no substantive answers regarding any of that. So he's not going to be attending the event. Did the office say that they would be sending anybody on his behalf? Uh, no, I did. We when we did meet with him, he he came in, and one of the first things he said was that he was not going to attend a town hall. So we already knew at that point he was not going to attend one. Then I brought an invitation to his office, and they were gracious and took the invitation, and I presume gave it to the congressman. But we haven't heard anything back from his office about whether he will attend or his staff will attend. And during the meeting, when I brought the invitation to his office, I did say we, we would be lovely to have um, staff there. We'd be happy with that. Yeah. And I have no response about that. Now, you are partnering with a couple of other groups for the event, yeah. the 47th District Democrats, as well as a mm-hmm. local Girl Scout troop. Uh, the Democrats yep. group makes sense. And I want to ask you about that in a second. The okay. Girl Scouts tend to stay apolitical. How did they come to be involved? Um, they came to be involved because I invited my Girl Scout troop to learn how to engage in civics and government. So they are not taking a political stand at this event, but they're going to facilitate uh, this town hall for everyone to attend. So they're just facilitators there, and they're learning how to engage their government. Got it. So are you a troop mom? Is that how they came to, uh, to I'm be involved? The, yes, I'm the co-leader. Nice. Of the tr- Okay. Yeah. So the 47th District Democrats, uh, and this is the 47th State Senate District. Uh, yes. Tell me about their involvement. Uh, they have their own, and I will be. I'll disclose. I am also a member of the 47th District Democrats. Uh, they have a resistance group, and they were also interested in conducting a constituent town hall. So when I went to their meeting, I said, "Would you care to partner with us?" And they were very happy to partner with us. So that's how that's how they became came to be involved with it. So we're partnering together, they're Indivisible and the 47th District Democrats. Okay, so let's talk about the lineup. Uh, you have some okay. very interesting speakers coming. Tell us about uh, some of them. Uh, we have a King County Council member, uh, Dave Upthegrove, and we have um, Kent City Council candidate, Satwinder Carr, and we have United States Congressional candidate, Koga On, coming to speak. We have a few more people we believe will be speaking, but we haven't got a final confirmation. So we haven't disclosed those people yet. Okay, well, I want to talk about Poga On in particular because okay. he has announced that he will be running against Dave Reichert. Yes, sir. Uh, so has he given you an idea of the sorts of things that he's going to be talking about at the, the meeting? Has he sent you a list of talking points? Uh, he has not done that yet because I have not asked him to do that yet. I plan on doing that in a couple days to uh, ask for his talking points. He's already spoken to some constituents here in the Covington Maple Valley area and shared his uh, progressive Democrat views. So I have a fairly good idea of what he's going to speak about. But um, the main impetus of getting him to speak at the town hall is so that people can ask him questions and learn about him and learn about a potential um, serious rival to Congressman Reichert. Yeah, it's going to be a great opportunity for him, uh, and I think probably a very friendly crowd. So in the absence of uh, Dave Reichert, uh, how do you plan on sort of facilitating the issues that people are going to want to talk about and address uh, with the congressman? Uh, even though the event is partly sponsored by Democrats, I would prefer to have our Republican congressman there. So knowing that he won't be there and knowing that people's questions, even at this time, especially at this time, are incredibly important for him to hear. Uh, Every question that gets asked at the town hall will be transmitted to his office by me personally. I go there about every other week and do office hours with uh, Congressman Reichert's Issaquah District office. So those questions, every question will be transcribed and submitted to his office. And also we'll have a, a table there. People can write their questions down for the congressman and also our senators who should also be having town halls. And I will personally transmit those questions and concerns 
to the senators also. You mentioned, I just want to back up here for a second, you mentioned that you do office hours at yes. the uh, the Issaquah office. Tell us about that. I, I, I don't think I've actually heard uh, that that's something that, that people can do. How does that work? Well, I'm not, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not certain that the average person can do it like we do it. We're invited because we're indivisible. So that's how I get to meet Sue Foy, who's the district director. And generally, uh, another person is in there taking notes. So we meet about every two weeks because I presume we're indivisible and re- representing a large a number of indivisible groups and members of indivisible uh, to meet with them and, and give them our concerns and relay questions to the congressman. Tell us how those meetings have gone generally. Um, they, they go all right, I suppose. I mean, we do we do bring specific concerns. Uh, Sue Foy can't really speak to the congressman's opinions about things, but we we do believe that she does transmit our concerns and questions to him. It's excellent to get to know the staff there and understand how the government works and how to better facilitate our interaction with the congressman. Right. Well, I think that's great. Um, so getting back to the event on the 12th, uh, will you be filming it? Yes, sir. Okay. And where will the footage be available? Um, we're going to try to Facebook Live it. Because it's at a school, the Facebook is blocked on their wireless network, so we're going to have to work on getting cellular or a VPN. So we do plan on Facebook living it on the Facebook event, and and we further further uh, I don't know exactly how we're going to disseminate the actual video of the event to people who are not on Facebook. I presume we'll put it on my own website, but I don't have that worked out quite yet. All right, uh, and you mentioned that it is at a middle school. Does it Cedar Heights Middle School? If people yes. want to find out the address and more specifics, uh, how can they get in touch? Well, there is a Facebook event that you can look at. It's a Dave Reichert Empty Chair Town Hall. Okay. If you're not on Facebook or that's difficult for you to find, you can find the event on my website, which is toomanydogs.org, T-O-O-M-A-N-Y-D-O-G-E-S.org. And also you can search uh, indivisibleguide.com and find the event there. It's posted there. And okay. also it's posted at uh, Resistance Recess. And people can get in touch with you through the toomanydogs.org site as well, right? Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. So uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you about one other event that you have planned that is listed on the TooManyDogs.org website, and that is something called the Great American Road Trip. You are planning to travel east and try to go and meet face-to-face with Trump voters Mm -hmm. where they live. Where did the inspiration for this come from? Uh, I just saw it elsewhere on Facebook. Somebody else had done the same thing, and i just feeling like it's a really, really important thing to do. We have this great horrible, deep divide between Trump voters and Hillary voters and, quite frankly, Bernie Sanders voters. I think there's deeper issues we need to learn about each other to deal with this problem we have right now in our in our democracy that's under threat. So when is this road trip supposed to take place? Oh, I think it's going to be probably early August. Oh, so you're going in summer. You're you're, you're going oh, to yeah. go right in the middle of uh, the uh, the dead of summer. Okay, so, right. <laughs> so you want to make sure you catch everybody uh, in a lemonade kind of mood, I guess, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to take the literal and the figurative heat. That's yeah. my plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if people want to learn more about that, they can also go to uh, TooManyDogs.org. Do you yeah. have uh, some people who have signed on to do this so far? Uh, I am partnering with an uh, indivisible group in Wenatchee. So when I'm done dealing with the town hall, because it takes a lot of uh, my energy to do that right now, of course. we're going to start working on uh, partnering with that and finding some not indivisible people, but actual you know citizens, Trump voters over there, to, to speak with and to learn about 
how they feel about things, how they feel about Trump and how they feel about, you know, Hillary and what's happening. How do you plan on facilitating those discussions? Do you have sort of a an itinerary planned out where you're going to, uh, I, I guess, do like an advance in a town and say, we're coming, we'd love to talk with some yes. people? Okay, so you're yeah. not just going to show up in like a local coffee shop and be oh, like, yeah. how's it going, everybody? Let's talk politics. Nah, no, well, because well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do the same thing with folks over here in Seattle either. I would, mm-hmm. I want, I'm interested in finding people who I don't want to change their mind, but I, I want them to share how they're feeling about what's happening. And I want people uh, from Seattle, Hillary voters, liberal voters, city dwellers, to share with them how they're feeling. And it's, the intention is not to change anybody's mind, but possibly build a relationship and have a better understanding of what is, what's causing this divide between us that goes beyond President Trump. So the ideal outcome then would simply be an understanding of one another. Okay. Absolutely. And then I share that with my people. They share it with their people. Maybe we can move forward a little bit. Well, you know, and this is just speaking from a strictly practical standpoint, a lot of the people who voted for Trump a fair amount. I mean, you know, we have our we, there's the basket of deplorables and there's nothing that can really be done with with yeah. that particular faction. But I think there was a uh, a fair amount of people who voted for Trump, I think, because they felt underrepresented. And that voting block, as the narrative goes, included a lot of blue collar workers in a lot mm-hmm. of Rust Belt type areas where manufacturing has gone away. Those are the kinds of people who the Democrats are ultimately going to need to win back in order Absolutely. to uh, to begin to take some of the the national power, both at the presidential level as well as at the state house level and, and, and the like. So is that part of your intention as well? Yes, it is, because we absolutely need to deal with folks that feeling unincluded by our society. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we should already have been doing that. I don't really understand why we, we haven't been doing that, but we, we need to take a stand and, you know, make unions stronger and all the things that a blue-collar workers value, because without blue-collar workers, not, nothing's going to get done. As we get closer to the event, I would very much like to talk with you again, and I would, of course, love to have you come back on and tell us uh, how the uh, event goes on the 12th. Will you come back and oh, talk with us? Well, sure. I'd be happy to. That'll be my second Skype. <laughs> <laughs> be, I'm, I'm very happy to have been your very first Skype call, <laughs> Catherine. Right. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on the show. And that will do it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. Uh, by the way, I did ask Catherine after our interview was over why she named her site Too Many Dogs. And yeah, it's because at one time she and her family had too many dogs. I like that. Uh, I should say also, if you are in District 8, please do try to make it to the event if you can and contact me for carpool information if you need it. It would be great to just pack the place, wouldn't it? Oh, and say hi to me. I'll be the guy in the beard and glasses and hat. That makes it sound like kind of a disguise, I guess, doesn't it? Uh, Anyway, uh, also, please do continue to get in touch. I am truly loving all of the great feedback. You guys are great. The email address is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to Catherine Williams, and thank you again to Daniel DeMay, and thank you, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.